In this edition of Hoosology, Justin and Matt welcome author of the book, Montana State's Golden Bobcats, the 1929 Basketball National Champions. Paul gets into the motivation for the book and why younger basketball fans will find this book compelling. And this is a really a subject matter that I think a lot of basketball fans don't really focus on because it's usually in terms of the history of basketball, it's focused on just the pros and the NBA and just the ABA. But this book is really compelling. And Paul gets into a lot of just the history of how, you know, this team really influenced a lot of the offense you see today in college and in professional basketball. Get in touch with the show through Twitter and Facebook. Leave us a review on iTunes and email us at hoopsologypod at gmail.com. We are a member of the OTG Basketball Network. And now, Paul Wiley. He is the author of the book, Montana State's Golden Bobcast, the 1929 Basketball National Champions. We welcome Paul Wiley onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Paul? It's, it's going very well, Justin, and thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to have you on, and it's great timing that we're talking about this book with March Madness being in full swing. So I can I ask you just a basic question. What was just the motivation of this book? Because just going through it, there's so much history, and kind of from the roots and everything that happened during this time period, it's affected so much of the basketball that we're currently witnessing. So can you kind of go over this journey of creating this book? The... Um... The story that's told in this book is one that I've known since I was a small child. Uh, this was the Montana State basketball team of 1929. My dad was in college early in the 20s. He graduated in about 1922. And amongst his friends were uh, players on the team, uh, mostly through my uncle, who was athletic. My dad wasn't. and uh, But we knew Max Worthington, for example, one of the the better all-around players uh, very well. He was in our house when I was just a baby, I think, and I, I knew him and, and knew him until he passed a few years ago. And over this time period, there was some discussion, of course, going on about this Golden Bobcat team because they were very unusual and they'd attained uh, a, a very remarkable goal, and that is uh, being named the national champion uh, by Helms Foundation and others. And Paul, can you just describe this with your research and putting this book together, paint a picture in terms of what the game of basketball looked like during that time period? Because I think just with Matt and I growing up, you know, in the 90s and a little bit of the 80s, we're used to just a very flamboyant game of basketball, very much focused on individuality and not necessarily teamwork at times. Can you kind of take us back to when the game was focused more in terms of working as a unit? This was uh, uh, one of the, the things that somewhat disappointed me in the research. I thought I'd get out there and do it and I'd find some old films and there were none. Uh, the camera lenses were too slow. Oh, no. The film was too slow. The lighting was too poor. And while you could find some football footage in, in that, of that era, that, that was outdoors where there was light. And inside, it just didn't get put down on film. I think as I looked, I think some of the earliest basketball films I could find were in Indiana in the mid 30s, I think, is about as early as I could go. And I also asked the Basketball Hall of Fame and others and simply couldn't find anything. So I'd hoped to find um, pictures, moving, moving footage of these people playing. And so 
uh, I get my description of how they played from just my own experience as starting to watch basketball as a young boy from Max Worthington, from my uncle, from my dad, who was, wasn't much of a player, but he was a good coach. Uh, and uh, it, it's put together in this way. Um, the earliest basketball games that I saw, and I, I've, I've got to put in here, I'm not the young man I was one one time. I'm 85 years old. <laughs> I was born in 1936 on Christmas Day. Oh, wow. And uh, so uh, it goes a long way back in the 1940s when I started watching basketball and kind of knew what was going on. And the high school games I first saw were very slow then. And then I saw some Montana State games, and they were fairly slow. And there was a lot of passing. Uh, not a lot of fast breaks, uh, uh, not, not maybe really good footwork, and high scores just didn't seem to exist much. And I think with this 1929 team, the coach Ott Romney uh, took over a team that was scoring about 30 points a game, kind of a high average for the time, and he thought all we need to do is convert this to 60 points a game and we'll simply outscore our opponents. So that's kind of the, the way basketball was played then. And um, uh, so I, I got to work on the book and uh, I'd done other books. I, uh, I'm an attorney by trade uh, and an engineer also by education, but there came a time in my my life when I was getting progressively older, like we all do. And I decided I wanted to do something else in a totally different field. So I got into history writing. And here, here's a book I, I wrote, and this is about an Indian massacre in Montana in 1873. It's rather famous. Wow. And uh, here's another one. This is about an Irishman named Thomas Francis Marr who was acting governor of Montana in 1865 uh, when he fell off a steamboat in the Missouri River and was drowned. But he's a, he's a famous person in Ireland, and I really enjoyed doing this. I'm not so sure I enjoyed the, the eight years of steady research on each book, but I got the job done at least, so they're, they're out there. Oh, that's and, incredible. Yeah, uh, I, I don't still don't think I asked the initial question. That was no, uh, you're fine. Why why I got into this book, and uh, I was just finished with Blood on the Marias, and I I thought I'd I would do another book, and I was just looking for a good topic, and I ran into uh, uh, a man in in Albuquerque who had written Boys in the Boat. And uh, it's a story about the University of Washington crew team in a 1930s Olympic Olympics. And I, you know, had no interest in crew, uh, but I started reading the book and said, my gosh, that's, that's a pretty good book. And it brings to light a lot of things in a sport. And then my next great thought was, I know a sports story, and it's the Golden Bobcat story. So I kind of set myself to writing that book. So that that's how I got here. That's so great. And and can you repeat those titles for us, just for the audio listeners? Is Blood on the Marias, yeah, you said, and the Irish General, I believe yeah. I read. 
the cool. the first book I did is the Irish General, and the name uh, of the Irish General is Thomas Francis Marr. It's pronounced Marr. Many people would say meager or maher or some other thing, but plain old Marr is good. And this came out about 2008, and it's it still sells well. Uh, people are always interested in history in Montana, and particularly Irish history, because this takes them way back to his life in Ireland when he was part of a, a failed revolution uh, to try to get the British off the island. So that that's the first book. And then uh, I ran onto this very interesting topic of the massacre by the United States Cavalry of an Indian village up close to uh, the Canadian border in Montana in 1973, eight, sorry, 1873. Hmm. And I thought I'd write on that one, and I'm glad I did. It's a sad, sad story. Uh, it was a massacre. Uh, there are times I said, I just can't go on with this, but I had to. Uh, hmm. And I'm glad I, I got it done. I think it's brought a lot to shedding light on exactly what happened. Mm, and that one is Blood on the Marias. Yes. So I just want to make sure our audio listeners know those titles. So the Irish General and Blood on the Marias. Uh, Paul, one of the things I, I was really excited to ask you about and, and in reading the book, you have a lot of knowledge in doing research for this about the student athlete experience in this time frame. I mean, amateurism, very much still a thing. Um what can you just kind of give us a general idea? I know all these athletes come from such different backgrounds and different life experiences, but can you give us a general idea of like a student athlete in the 1920s, like the the different responsibilities they were juggling and kind of what their student life may have looked like, um, which is very different from from what I gather from what I've read from the modern day student athlete. Yeah, I, I can, Matt. Thanks. Um, the uh, uh, players on the, the Golden Bobcat team, uh, as you can see on the co cover, there are uh, these are the starters. And of course, the whole team is here, but these are the starters. And the three people uh, here are all from Utah. And then uh, Max Worthington, who I talked about, is here, and this is Brick Breeden here. They, they are from Montana. And it was not a time in uh, collegiate athletics that a lot of people were recruited uh, out of state. I think in, in, a, in some ways the coaches just uh, called the team out for practice and kind of waited to see who would, would show up on campus. And of course they'd they had targeted pay players they wanted to come, and these were persuaded to come, but they, they weren't given full athletic scholarships. Um, as I dug into this and I talked to Max Worthington, I found out that the equivalent of that in those days was to get them a job that would mm -hmm. give them some money and didn't require a whole lot of work because they had to practice a lot during their after hours. And so the, the teams, I think, that in the Rocky Mountain Conference uh, kind of came from local kids, and there weren't a lot of kids 
coming back and forth from Utah to Montana, but that was actually started in 1914 by Ott Romney, who was the coach who put together the Golden Bobcat team. And uh, he was a, uh, a three-sport athlete at the University of Utah. He was also very bright. And I, I might say in passing, he is he is a member of the Romney clan of Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And his uh, cousin was George Romney, who was Senator Mitt Romney's uh, father. Yeah. And um, uh, so Ott Romney uh, decided he would go to Harvard for his his uh, fourth year. And he's he was so bright, he finished up at Harvard rather quickly. And he came back to the University of Utah in time to participate in the spring uh, basketball season, but he wasn't eligible because he'd, he'd already graduated at the University of Utah in three years. So he, he started coaching a little. And about two years later, his coach at Utah, uh, or a man who had been his coach at one time, uh, decided he wanted to go to Montana Montana to study agriculture, and he got a job coaching at Montana State. And of course, he knew who wanted to come with him. It was Ott Romney. Hmm. And then there was a problem whether Ott was a graduate student, whether he had eligibility left. And I think the Utah schools were saying, no, he didn't have any eligibility. Uh, And I think the University of Montana and I might say the University of Montana, Missoula was then Montana State University, which is now here in Bozeman, which has the Bobcat team. They just, there was this awkward change of name. Mm. And, um, but the first un- Montana State University was in Missoula and they complained at Montana State College, as uh, Bozeman was known then, that Ott Romney was, was receiving benefits and they said, no, he's, he just does some work and he's, he's hired to teach also and a few things like that. And it, it just kind of became muddled. Uh, there, there were no clear rules. Uh, Montana State was not a member of the Rocky Mountain Co- uh, Conference at that time. And uh, I think the schools in Utah sort of had a better understanding between themselves of what actually went on in recruiting that really didn't include Montana State. So Ott comes up to uh, Bozeman, Montana and plays a year of football and a year of basketball. And he was a tremendous athlete. And then then he, he uh, uh, was on as an assistant coach for a while. And then he went to Billings to coach uh, Billings High School team and from there, he went back to Utah to coach at East High, High School. Now, that was sort of the, the connection between Montana State and the Utah basketball players. Gotcha. And it, it sounded like um, some of the coaches, like the, um, the coach who brought along Ott Romney, I believe I remember reading he was 31 years old uh, at the time that he went out to Montana. Um, what was the the 
head coaching position like? It sounded like you had players that played multiple sports, as you mentioned, like with Ott Romney. You had some coaches uh, as well that coached multiple sports at the college level. Uh, what was kind of the the pedigree or prestige of of the coaching position at that time? Was it um, were coaches staying around for long tenures at certain schools, or was it a bit more transitory than it is uh, now? Perhaps what what was that dynamic like in those days? Well, to answer the last question first, it, it did seem that they didn't stay all that long in these positions. Mm. Uh, and it may have been lack of sort of the, the uh, uh, prestige of winning uh, consecutive championships, things of that nature. Uh, Fred Bennion was the coach who came up from Utah and brought Ott up as a player. And um, uh, when Ott... Um, and Ott did become coach at, at Montana State in 1921. And, uh, but the, the position that Bennion had and that Ott had uh, was as um, uh, head of the athletics, director of athletics, first of all, and then head football coach, head basketball coach. Possibly they might have someone else come in for track and minor sports. But the, the, it was a heavy coaching job, and they generally had only one assistant, one single assistant. And um, it was a lot of relying on the players themselves, I think. The game was a little different. I, I think they didn't draw up the plays that they may be able to do today. And I'm, I'm speaking a little out of my range because I'm not the basketball expert that you guys are. Gotcha. And and it, it did sound like Ott Romney, I mean, was quite the leader of of young men as well. I mean, some some dominant football performances as well as, of course, what he was able to build on the basketball court. It, he was a tremendous leader and a, a charismatic leader. And I think from everything I've heard from my discussions with Max Worthington over the years was that that Romney was was just a, a total guiding light for the players, and he was he had been a, a sports player himself, and so he knew what they they were going through. Paul, um, I wanted to ask you: in sports, there are teams that remain part of the community forever, um, whether you're watching football. Um, in terms of like the Dallas Cowboys to baseball with the Yankees or Red Sox, in terms of this Montana State's basketball teams, what does how does the community remember this team? Is there any kind of connection between um, the players that are currently um, you know playing for Montana State right now? Is there any kind of like effort to make sure they're aware of this team and is the community at large making sure that they're aware of this history and how much of an impact um, this has had um, on Montana State's basketball at large? Justin, I think uh, the awareness of the the current teams and the community is, is not as great as one might think it would be. Uh, I grew up hearing from my parents, from Max Worthington, and from others how great this team was and won a national title. And of course, you know, I, I went from a little town of about a thousand people to Bozeman, Montana, to go to college and look about as big as it gets here, as far as I knew. <laughs> so it, it's a little hard. It, it's much easier today to see the big time because we're watching television. 
all the time. And we did not have television in Montana until about 1955. So I grew up almost totally without it. But this is the, the impression one gets that Bozeman may be as big time as there is. You learn later, it isn't, but it's a learning process. And um, uh, I think the town, uh, they got it, but it, it's kind of not a sports town sometimes. Mm. Sometimes it is. It is right now. Mm. Uh, we just won both men's and women's championships in, in the Big Sky Tournament. We, both teams went to the NCAAs, first time in a long time. Um, you know, it's sort of like an unusual year. And then the, the football team was in the national championship uh, for their, their division down in Frisco, Texas in January. So all of a sudden, we're just sitting around here saying, well, ho-hum, what's going on? And, and all of a sudden, we get all of these goodies dumped on us. <laughs> has, has the community really rallied around that? Do you see maybe due to the success you're seeing currently, maybe, you know, the increased awareness of, you know, the teams of the past will become more prevalent in the future? Do you see more of an effort just to kind of learn just about the past since these, you know, these teams are doing so well nowadays? Do you see an effort to um, really kind of look into what turns out to be a really rich sports history in your neck of the woods? Well, I, I think that's certainly started up again. Um, I know this, this book has been so well received here in yeah. Bozeman. Uh, people have always had heard the name uh, Golden Bobcats if they're somewhat serious in, in basketball watching. But here there's the first time there's been a full book on it, and it describes all the players and where they came from and the, the uh, successes that the Golden Bobcats actually had as a basketball team. And it's a little unusual because back then in 1929 and in the 1920s, Montana State was, was a very small, remotely located institution. I mean, they had, oh, somewhere between a, a thousand to maybe 1500 students. The town of Bozeman only had about 10,000. Uh, it just wasn't the big stuff, which you could actually see in Salt Lake City, that was, that was a large town for the, this part of the world. And um, so uh, to have a team like this uh, uh, really playing that well, uh, kind of hit all the papers in the United States and people gradually started to know about Montana State and they gradually started to know about the Bobcats. Yeah. that. Um... That that leads to, I think, a really interesting question that I wanted to ask you. Um, can you kind of describe for us maybe just briefly how the national champion was determined at that time? I mean, obviously, we have March Madness right now. Um, basketball fans all know about that across the board. But um, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, the media was deciding the consensus national champion. And do you feel that Montana state being in just a smaller population state was at a disadvantage? Um, and, and that's kind of speaks to how great this team was that they were able to get that national recognition. Matt, I, I think it must've been a disadvantage. Um, I think, uh, uh Washington state uh, college in Pullman, Washington, uh, was named national championship 
uh, by consensus in about 1916. And so that was a, a somewhat of a regional team, but the other teams that were named national champions uh, uh, in the preceding years were, um, uh, actually, I've, I've got this someplace. And I know you had mentioned earlier that it was pretty rare to have like a back-to-back -back, uh, national champion at the time. Well, it was. Here's, mm -hmm. here's what happened in the preceding uh, 10 years, Matt. Uh, and this is all from the Helms Foundation uh, naming the national champions, which they did. People relied on them. Mm -hmm. They relied on the newspaper accounts and, and correspondence. But in... Um, 1919, it was Minnesota. In 1920 and 21, it was Pennsylvania. In 1922 and 23, it was Kansas. In 1924, it was North Carolina. In 1925, Princeton. In 1926, Syracuse. In 1927, Notre Dame. And in 1928, Pittsburgh. And in 1929, Montana State. Now, how did they get into this list, gold-plated list, uh, with ability? I can tell you it was ability. And, and do you feel, and from your research, I mean, was the scoring average a, a big part of that? Um, or was it uh, a standout record as well, I assume? They had uh, two years where they they lost only two games well, they won 36, and in the 1928 season and the 1929 season, they were 36 and two each season. Uh, I think, um, and some of these games were played against very good competition, and uh, I, I think that sort of made its mark on the public. And that competition was the result of like regional teams being very high-ranked, powerful teams as well. Well, it, it was. Uh, Matt, one of the things that happened in 1929 that really probably pushed Montana State to the championship was a victory over a non-collegiate team. It was the Cook Paint Company of Kansas City, uh, Missouri, and uh, uh, they were an industrial team. And they were full of All-Americans, college mm -hmm. All-Americans from uh, the recent years. And they were considered the best basketball team in the United States by far. And mm -hmm. they had a uh, player, Forrest D. Bernardi, who was considered the best player in the United States. They came to Montana to play a three-game series, and they lost two of the games against Montana State. And that, when news of that got around the country, uh, I think people could say that, hey, this Montana State really is serious because the Cook Painters were had players that all they did was play basketball, really, for the company. Mm. Awesome. Uh, another uh, question, and Justin, I'm sorry, you can you can jump no, in on the it. next one. No, you got um, it. I, have, I just have to ask, um, 
with you know your family's closeness with Max Worthington, uh, maybe you have a sense of his thoughts as well as maybe other members of this team. Is what what were their thoughts in seeing just the evolution of the game? I mean, through the '60s and '70s and '80s, certainly kind of considered the the golden age of the NBA. What were their thoughts on the evolution of basketball and and where um, the game has kind of kind of headed? Um, were they excited to see some of these changes? Did they main remain um you know pretty strong basketball fans um what were kind of their thoughts about the the more modern game matt i i think uh their thoughts are very positive as near as i can tell uh they uh once a basketball fan always a basketball fan and -hmm. the game has done nothing but improve over the years um i can remember seeing some of these older games and my gosh, it was like watching ice melt. You know, the, the ball hardly moved and the players uh, didn't move. And they had some close passing, they called it, which is almost like a football handoff. And with screening and, and uh, almost football formations, <laughs> it seemed to me, looking back at it. And then the other thing that happened is the... Uh, uh, the bench players really didn't get to play that much generally in basketball at that time. Uh, I think the, the thought and philosophy was that you earned your way to a starting position on the team. And once you earned it, you, you could not easily lose it. And it wasn't putting in players all along during the game to keep fresh legs on the court. Uh, it, it was keeping the starting five on the court uh, because they knew each other and they could run these more or less set plays, a lot of them. Paul, last question for you. Um, what do you want um, this basketball fans that, you know, all they know is just what's happening now on social media in terms of watching their favorite stars. Why should they get this book a chance? And what would they learn about reading about this book and how it relates to today's game overall? I, I, I think, Justin, it's it's kind of a, a historical artifact of a historical game, which itself was 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 an artifact of the times. Uh, it's it's basically intended for people who are, are interested in history and how things came to be. And what I tried to do was trace the backgrounds of the individual players. And of course, the Utah players came out of Southern Utah. They were just farm boys, and uh, I think what it it showed to me as I was doing the research and what I hope it shows to other people is regardless of circumstances, regardless of backgrounds, a good basketball player can come, come from anywhere. Justin, I think, I think you muted. Can I get one Uh, more question? Yeah, of course. If we have time, do you have time for one more, Paul? Sure. Um, Great. Thank you. Um, So I, I grew up, um, I have little, maybe unnecessary background about me. One of my best friends growing up was LDS. And I have noticed, uh, I'm not LDS myself, but very close with that community uh, here in Albuquerque. And one thing that I've noticed is basketball seems to be a very, very big part of recreation for the LDS church. 
And of course, there's there's a lot of LDS uh, players that, that were mentioned uh, throughout this story. So I was just wondering, just out of personal curiosity, if if you knew um, kind of the the widespread impact of basketball in the LDS community. We've uh, spoken with authors in the past that have talked about um, YMCA's impact on the sport of basketball and how they spread basketball into a global phenomenon. Um, but can you speak in any of your research, are, are you aware of just kind of the impact of basketball on the LDS community or vice versa? Oh, great, great question, Matt. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not LDS either, uh, but I did work in Utah uh, on two different occasions for about a total of five years. And uh, I'm, I'm such a great admirer of the recreational activities offered by, by the various church stakes mm -hmm. there. And each stake, uh, from what I understand and observed, has a full basketball court. And they start kids playing at an early age, and the old men get out there in an old men's <laughs> league. And, and believe me, <laughs> if there was no jumping, I, I could still do it, I, I think. <laughs> I'm bragging. But uh, uh, I think it, it's, uh, uh, it, it was a good uh, breeding grounds for good, serious basketball players. And I think when you get someone like Ott Romney coming up to Montana, and Ott was, was very much a member of the Latter-day Saints Church, and which really didn't exist that much in Montana at the time. Uh, there were, uh, I think, Eventually, a steakhouse was built in Billings in the 18, 1940s or something like that. And I was a little surprised that, that uh, there weren't more members of the Latter-day Saints Church in Montana, but, but there weren't. That's really interesting, especially because Matt and I um, grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we've seen really what, to your point, Matt, in terms of the prevalence of this BYU and just how basketball really has played a massive role in that school as well as Utah and Utah State. So that, that's been something that's been highly, highly prevalent in, in all those programs as well. Um, Paul, this has been a fantastic chat. Uh, thanks for coming on to the show. Um, please let our viewers and listeners know where they can catch the book and um, any other projects you're working on as well. Okay. Uh, thank you, Justin, so much. It, 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 believe me, it was my pleasure being here, and I, I've really enjoyed it, and thank you for the, the nice questions. Uh, on the book, uh, it was released about a month ago and is still getting out in circulation, and uh, uh, it is for sale in Barnes & Noble, uh, will have it, uh, and at not all stores because they're somewhat regional, and uh, Amazon has it online. And then I, I think there may be other outlets online. It's simply a matter of looking for it. Uh, here in Bozeman, uh, of course, this is the heart of the, the matter here, and uh, all the bookstores have it. Uh, I, I think it will, will be out there. Uh, I've been invited to attend an inauguration ceremony at the uh, Utah Sports Hall of Fame oh, in early awesome. April, uh, and it's inauguration of coaches into their Hall of Fame, and it's a banquet. And they asked me to come down and sign the book, just awesome. be there That's signing fantastic. the book. And then the next day, they want me to sign at their 
Museum, which is right up on Main Street in Salt Lake City, uh, a very nice facility. And that kind of solves my problem because I really wanted to put a title on the book. Uh, and this wouldn't have, have ever been the title, but it'd be like Montana State's Golden Bobcats with Utah players. <laughs> and that, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> no one would buy that. But uh, the way it was done, the Utah players are up here in the center. And then on the back cover, it's all about Ott Romney and the Utah players. And this is uh, Romney Gym, which was hmm. a, a building, a gymnasium constructed in 1921. And uh, it was eventually named Romney Gym. It wasn't right away, but that's that was as good a way as any to, to kind of get the Utah connection into it because it was very important. Cat uh, Thompson, um, this, this man uh, was only about five feet, eight inches tall, but he was a four-year All-American. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely uh, you guys listening to the podcast uh, really highly recommend reading this book. Uh, just a fascinating piece of basketball history. I mean, I think anyone who's a fan of the sport of basketball is going to enjoy hearing about this team and uh, this era of basketball. So please be sure to support Paul and check out this book. Agreed. Thank you very much, Paul. Matt, Justin, thank you guys so much. I, I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it a lot.